On this episode of Eager to Know, creativity in children, comparison, and staying connected. A fresh conversation on some familiar Eager to Know topics. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. For this episode, I brought back two of the very first guests I had on my then yet to be launched podcast. Alex Walking and Paul Schultz joined me to talk about many of the concepts that have kept showing up on the past 25 episodes of Eager to Know. Yeah, so I selected um, three people when I first started, and I wanted to get people of different personalities. So it was um, you two plus Robert, and Robert was supposed to be here, but he he's we was not able to make it last minute. He had to back out. But anyhow, um, but you guys were the first three and different personalities. Um, obviously, you're in real estate. You are a a conglomerate of of, Mostly architecture. Sk- of skills and activities. <laughs> yes. um, and then Robert is a painter. And really, what I was trying to do when that first started first started was just to try things out and to see um, to see how it went and just and to do different styles of of interviews. You know, with yours, Paul, I did a lot of listening. Um, and then with yours, I was much more engaged and I did that purposely cause I just wanted to see how things yeah, went. Yeah, find your own style. But anyhow, but well, but welcome back. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. You're very welcome. Um, so what I thought we could do is I wanted to talk about things that have come up on the podcast because I'm now up to episode 26 and, um, it's amazing. Yeah. And I, and I, I see a lot of the same themes keep coming up. Um, I'm not forcing it, but they just come up. And I would love to have you guys' opinion on these themes. I'd love to of offer it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think this first one, this one keeps coming up. And, it, we did, and I believe we spoke about this. But um, that children are very creative and... You know, when children are young, it's kind of an, a level playing field with creativity. Like, usually they're all kind of creative. And then at some point, um, as the, the interview that I just did last week that hasn't aired yet, um, the, you know, you snap out of it. Um, for the most part, people stop being creative. And then with adults, it's, I feel like people are struggling to get back to that creativity. Oh, yeah. Do you want to go first? Sure. I, I, in our episode, I think we spoke about the concept or the phenomenon of strong suits. And I think that's what creates all the different personalities that we experience every day is people develop something that they're really good at. And I think in grade school, what happens is people see that someone's better than them in something like art or sports, and then they decide to pull back. But before that, Maybe in kindergarten, everybody thought they could do everything. Yeah. Mm. The, so this is a topic that I've talked to, uh, many times about with teachers and friends and people who are educators. And this is something that's always fascinated me. And it, I was in a psychology class in college years ago, and we were talking about this topic and why art is always being cut out of the school system, mm-hmm. specifically public schools. And what happens so much, the reason why is, you know, it's good to have have creativity in children. That's how they logically problem solve. Or, you know, let's paint a picture of a house. Um, and when you paint a picture of the house, well, you could. this is giving you an idea or a forte into becoming an architect. Or um, let's build something so you can learn how to be an engineer, you know, something like that. But what ends up happening over time, right around the, around the ages of 8 to 10, you have all the creativity beaten out of you. Because it's easier to control a non-creative child than it is a child whose mind is going a hundred different directions. So in some respects, it's a way of keeping order and form and keeping the class moving forward, as well as teaching kids discipline. I think what ends up happening down the road when we start hitting our 20s and having our quarter-life crisis, I just had mine a couple of years ago. <laughs> but I think what ends up happening 
is, you know, you always hear this, you know, you got to find your inner child. And one thing that we had talked about in our podcast that actually resonated with me so much was how do you solve a problem creatively? And one of the things that I thought of that I do really well is find that inner child. How would six-year-old Alex solve this problem? Mm. And in sometimes it's just making a problem simple. Because I think as we as adults, as we as we move through life and gain life experiences, complicate we complicate things, totally. especially if you're college edu- educated, because college teaches you how to think. It, it doesn't matter what you learn, but it teaches you how to organize your thoughts. And when you start to pack things into a box and you shove it away in your mind, and all of a sudden you're faced with uh, some kind of a crisis or a problem at work or whatever the case may be, you then have to go find that box that you hid your creativity away and you have to pull it out. And I think that's the biggest problem. And it's interesting that becomes a theme in your podcast here is because we it's so lost and it's something that is so far gone now at our point in time that technology has disrupted that where now we depend on an app for everything mm-hmm. um, or technology has made everything easier. Um, I don't think we're really seeing the the ingenuity or the um, the the advances or the innovation that we saw, you know, 10 years ago during Steve Jobs era, you know, when he was, I mean, he came up with the idea of Apple tripping balls on like some drug or something like that. Mm. And that's how he came up with the idea for Apple. And actually Steve Jobs, his, um, where he got the idea for the operating system for Apple was a Native American art class. Okay. So that's something, you know, there's creativity. I thought he stole it from Xerox. That too, but I heard something, <laughs> I think that was part of it, but I think the actual design of it, uh, the actual design and the layout of the okay. operating system was from a Native American art class. And so I mean, people, when you take art away from schools, getting back to that topic, when you start taking art away from schools, and that's what you're robbing kids of, is that ability to problem solve and uh, that ability to think outside the box. I think we lose that. I don't want to blame it on adults, but I'm going to. Okay. Oh, <laughs> because. Yeah. If you think about it, there's so many things in the in movies and in television and also within the people you know and the people you know that specifically have kids where they say, well, don't go into, don't be an artist because you won't make any money mm-hmm. yeah. or don't, are you sure you want to go into industrial design? Maybe you should just do it engineering because it's going to pay well. And I think the adults instill this in the young people as well, because what do kids know? They don't know the difference between engineering and and art, they just know that they're going to build a, a trebuchet or something and then launch something or they're just interested in sparklers. But then all of a sudden the adults become the realists. And that's not altogether a bad thing because we do have to, in some ways, have our feet on the ground. But to squash it or lessen the importance of tapping into all of your abilities and skills and desires happens, I think, from above and then happens within the social structures of K through 12 because everyone wants to fit in. But I think a lot, I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I know I was a creative little kid, but I used to do these, these very detailed um, drawings and they were very elaborate and very detailed. And this was in elementary school and I was like the artsy kid. And, um, and I remember they were so elaborate that the teacher would like, pull them out and pull the class together and see what <laughs> see what Ricky did. And, you know, I was like, whatever. But I remember at some point, the boys were like, Ugh, are you still doing those drawings? Like they definitely started to look yeah. down on our art as something, like not something that a boy would do. Yeah. At least that was my experience. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, I'm not doing that. So I kind of shifted into other things. But that Social was that, acceptance. Yeah. that was my, um, you know, my experience, yeah. and you know, and I did get picked on by other people too. I'm re- remembering um, just for, I remember writing books and like these books with drawings. It was the book was called The Purple Orange, and it was about a um, an orange like the fruit, but he was purple, so he was different. 
And it was all about his... Green was, eggs and ham. Uh, yeah. Well, it was all about how he dealt with being different Acceptance and how he was judged. And I can't believe yeah. I wrote this. It's kind of, it sounds kind of brilliant. I yeah, was that like, sounds like... I was like in third grade. You should do paintings about it. <laughs> I know, but whatever. But I remember being made fun... I remember someone making fun of it and like, ugh, like, what are you doing? Like, you shouldn't be... You should be out playing baseball. You shouldn't yeah. be writing about a purple orange. So I think that's, you know, and those weren't adults. Those were kids. Yeah. I was just going to say, too, along with lines of what Paul just said earlier, I mean, you get, I, I think, societal norms and um, especially how fragile masculinity is, um, you know, especially with because I grew up in theater. So for me, wanting to do musicals or choir or dance or whatever the case may be, that was I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. But constantly being um, picked on or bullied or, you know, being made out to be the outsider because I was one of I was one of eight boys in the entire drama department out of a drama department of two hundred people. Wow. So I mean, it was it was just that kind of thing when people are um, they they don't know how to handle it. I will also say that where I grew up was a very blue collar Midwestern town. So the access to a larger city that was a little more liberal or accepted. Um, you know, being a homosexual or being involved where there is just more art, mm -hmm. um, you know, that I, I can't really blame them for that. You know, obviously can't, ignorance isn't really something to be accepted, but I also don't fault them either because they just don't know any better. Sure. So I, I think that's part of it is they, they don't know how to handle what they don't know. Yep. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I think it also, it's not, we shouldn't single art out. No. It, it because if you think about all the, people that were kind of off to the side in K through 12, let's just say, for instance, I look at my brother, who I think I didn't get made fun of because he was the neighborhood bully. Mm. <laughs> and I don't think anyone would mess with him. Ooh, that's <laughs> handy. But in the meantime, in very he, learned, he learned welding, I think at age 14. Mm -hmm. And he basically would cut, he took the front of my bike off and welded it to his bike to make the chopper. Ooh. So oh. in his own way, he was a he was a maker, a creative type of person, very mechanically minded, and now he's a very successful electrician with his own company. And I think what happens is we end up um, kind of putting people into these categories of well, you're not going into law, you're you're not going to be a doctor, so you've got to be this outsider. But then again, it's generalization. Yep. It's interesting what you say about your brother learning welding because my brother went to school for car customization and collision repair. So for him, same thing. I mean, he's ever since we were kids, he always played with his cars. He never wanted to go to a four-year university. It wasn't his thing. And when he was telling people he was going to auto school, and it was a one-year program, the, the incredibly disrespectful and just shaming that went on with him going to a, a technical school was absurd. What so, really? I thought you said you were in a blue collar area. Yeah, that, that's what it was. It, at my high school, um, especially where I went to school, we had more National Merit Scholars come out of my school than any other other local high schools combined, and it was just this. Um, it was really interesting. I guess you know when people send their kids to my high school, um, because of the demographics of that school and the way it's set up. It's set up for kids who don't exactly have a leg up in life. It makes it easier for them to get into college okay. because you know they can shine more. Um, but also, there's a lot of there's a lot of programs for them. And when he was going to a technical school, it's almost like, oh no 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 no, don't do that anymore. Like that's that that was the feeling that he got. It was just like why? It was coming from teachers. His own teachers were saying, oh, why are you doing that? Interesting. Yeah, it was really. It was really interesting. The other thing I felt bad for him for is I went to a private school in a big city. And so for, he always, for college, for college, I, I went to DePaul, you know, that's what brought me to Chicago. And so he was always living in my shadows of, oh, well, Alex went to Chicago and he went to this big fancy school. Why aren't you doing the same thing? Mm -hmm. So I think he also had to deal with that a little bit too. Okay. But, um, you know, it was very interesting. Yeah. You know, his, his whole creation was you know, painting cars and fixing stuff. That's what he enjoyed. And that's, I think a lot of times we, people downplay that. So one thing that you bring up um, that kind of gets me into my next set of questions mm -hmm. is around comparison. Yeah. And this has become a big deal, particularly with social media, where nowadays you have the ability 
to see what everyone wants you to see that they're doing and what they're up to. Highlight reel. Um, but, uh, you know, it's something that keeps coming up. And uh, someone used the term, the comparison spiral. And I'm definitely guilty of this. Mm-hmm. And it's about, um, it's, an, it's something that guests keep bringing up where it is a challenge that you have to not fall into that. It's a what big is tra- the definition of that? Um, basically being just what I, my definition is being distracted from yourself and your goals and what you're focused on by what other people are, are doing and comparing what, um, your value based on your perceived value of how people are presenting themselves. And this can be on social media. So this could be, um, you know, if you're an artist looking at the progress that other Mm -hmm. people have. Um, I interviewed this guy, Tony Rossi, who was an actor. He's a, he's a, you know, he's kind of um, just starting out as an actor, trying to get things moving. And it's a big issue um, because he also does coaching for actors. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge issue for them because they're looking at people that have been doing the same, for doing acting for the same amount of time that he's doing. And they're getting all of these roles or they're, you know, they're in different places and it's, and it can be very distracting. I, I, I understand now comparison spiral. I think that it's all contextual. For instance, my brother, the one that I said is a bully, who by the way, is not a bully now. (laughs) After college, he became really cool. It's just that when we were younger kids, he'd be like that kid, you know? Uh, he is very successful. He has a, he's a, he's electrician and he has his own business and they do very well in the suburbs in Chicago. And I, once or twice, my parents compared me with him and my other siblings. And I think they just stopped because they realized it's like apples and oranges. And once you realize that even someone within the same field as you, like someone in architecture or furniture design, I could look at them and I could look at the, um, the depth of what they're doing at this moment and, and how much they've done so far. And compared to me, and it doesn't matter because I've done a whole different set of things aside from that. Sure. So it's all about like, I think we should be applauding everybody for their achievements naturally because we bring everybody up together and and it's sort of a self-supporting creative community. Yeah, I I definitely support that. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, I have so much to say about this topic. So I the way I had heard the spiral was a very good friend of mine said you can't compare your film to someone else's highlight reel, mm-hmm. and that's because people only put out on social media what they want you to see, and mm-hmm. they only want to show you the good stuff. Um, they only want to show you, you know, the what they're proud of. They don't show you the times they struggled, the times they were flat broke or cried themselves to sleep. I mean, they don't show any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where champions are made. And one thing that, especially in the gay community that I personally struggle with is just the body image. It is so, especially being a millennial gay, like it is hard. Is this an Instagram thing? The Instagram's part of Facebook. I mean, people constantly posting their meal plans, their dietary, you know, their dietary um, supplements, their fitness. They're constantly working. The videos of them working out wherever it is. I mean, that might be the only time they went to the gym that week, but my God, it made it onto Facebook. Um, it's it, especially when you're like, when you're under the age of like. 30 because 32 gay men is like, you might as well be middle-aged once you cross the 30 <laughs> threshold. Um, it, there's so much pressure to look a certain way and act a certain way. And you can't be too gay. You can't be too femme. You can't be too this. You can't be too that. And um, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and it's, there's, there's, I mean, I got to the point now where I had to shift. I had to do two things. I had to shift my mindset. Number one, and number two, I had to hit the unfollow button. Mm-hmm. There were some people I just had to unsubscribe from. And to the point that I, I was getting so lost in the pressure of having to look a certain way okay. that I was I was completely losing sight of what it was I was doing. And, you know, focus, turning business goals or things I wanted to do into fitness goals. And not that it was really anything that was that important to me. I would just have this pressure of I'm supposed to look like this. 
Yeah. So I, I and I know I I brought up this topic and I led it with the idea of social media. Yeah. But I really think that before social media, fifty years ago, I feel like people probably did the same thing. They did. Yeah. It's a. I feel like this is a human trait. Oh yeah. But it's just For sort sure. of brought to a new level. I, yeah. I but think I think social that, media uh, puts a magnifying glass. Right. But on I it. think that people always would compare it. I mean, yeah. you know, you live in a neighborhood and it's keep up with the Joneses. Totally. You know, you're looking at what the car yeah, that just, the neighbors I have. Think it was different. Back I think in those we days. can distill it to consumerism. Totally. If you look at what all the different topics of why people um, comparison spiral, so to speak, with someone else, it has it it may have. Some, and I'm not an expert, but it may have something to do with they have that and I don't, mm-hmm. or I have that and therefore I must be doing better. Mm-hmm. And the concept of that, which is either physical or non-physical, or they have the life the, mm-hmm. of their dreams, or they have the the physical object that make their life easier or make them look better or drive better or or have better better parties so to speak or it could be an american phenomenon that that is because of our our need to consume but it could also just be a human trait where where we are always in competition with another human for dominance in some way i'm not sure yeah i mean i think it's probably a more of an american thing and i think Mm -hmm. that's probably what has generated like our our economy yeah i didn't notice it in denmark when i lived there and for instance i was studying architecture and furniture design in denmark and i went to house parties of people that i knew there danish people and very modest they weren't trying to compare they had really good quality design in life but they only had one really great chair and a great sofa right and i felt well, my experience was that it was just like that that weight was lifted off. Mm-hmm. When you went to the department store, there were five, around, around five coffee makers that you could buy. And it wasn't because they were forcing you to buy those. Those were the best designs. And people knew that they weren't going to buy crap design because they wanted to last a long time. And it was like that for everything. Yeah. Like they were, they're just really good designers in, by nature. And I have a feeling their consumerism is based on quality over mm-hmm. quantity and their experience of life may be different than American experience. But, you know, I didn't study yeah. these things. Well, I think along with what you were saying about consumerism and in, in, especially in America, um, I think it also comes down to a human trait of just people wanting to be validated or to be seen and to be accepted as one of blank. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, especially keeping up with the Jones, that's what that's all about is, yeah. is just, uh, you know, how do I, how do you see me the way I want you to see me? And, um, does what I say matter? Do you hear me? Does, am I one of you? Cause people want to belong. Um, I mean, look at the church system. I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> they yeah. want to belong. So I think validation has a lot to do with yeah. that too. I agree with you. I think validation and being seen mm-hmm. and being, yeah, and being validated. Validated and valued. Yes. Yeah. As someone worth something. Totally. So I did an interview with April from the Rialto Report. I don't know if you guys listened to that episode. So the Rialto uh-uh. Report is a podcast and it's all about the adult film industry in new york of the 60s 70s and some of the 80s and um so april is someone i didn't mention this on the podcast but we actually used to work together and like a like something completely unrelated to porn (laughs) and she had mentioned years ago when we were working together that she was working on a documentary um about the porn industry and I thought that was amazing. And then whatever, we ended up connecting a few months ago and I interviewed her. But one of the things that came up was that when you were filming porn in the 60s and 70s, um, there were a lot of constraints that you had because they were just starting out. They didn't have a lot of money. Um, they didn't have, um, there was, they just didn't have the technology that we have. And one of the things that came up that I thought was so interesting was that being constrained really forced them to be creative. And I had never really thought about that, like constraints forcing creativity. Is that something that you had ever thought about? 
from my end, when I, I taught architecture and design for eight years, and that was the number one uh, starting point for developing a unit of, of de- to teach a unit of design or a concept or a principle. So basically, I would come up with something that they had, the students had to design, but then I would remove options. And when I didn't do that, they went crazy with it. And they were so stressed out because they didn't even know how to funnel their ideas. But the minute I said, oh, and by the way, it has to be built on a post above the ground, 10 feet, a building. Uh, and you can do you can do X, Y, and Z. And then they would ask, can I break this rule? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I do believe that constraints is one of, of the... It, it, it's one of the most powerful ways to, to pull creativity out of any situation. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a listing right now in the Gold Coast for $5 million. And talk about constraints. Um, it's on the 1400 block of Astor Street. And across the street is the governor's house. And this particular property sits on a very rare 50-foot wide lot. Everything else on Astor Street is 25 feet. This is on a double lot. And the number one thing that we hear on showings is that the house needs too much work. It, it's a gut rehab. Um, you know, you have the original house that's the 25-foot facade. And then there was an, an addition that was put on in the 40s where that was just a single-story addition. So it's almost like this L-shaped house from the street. But it's got a stunning courtyard in the back. And uh, so you can't tear it down because it has um, – you know, it's it's uh, it's a part of a landmark district, so you can't get rid of that. You can't get rid of the original facade of the original house um, because it's part of the the landmark designation. You um, you can tear down the small piece, but the zoning restricts it to single family. It could be condos, but most likely it's only going to go as single family. So there's so many rules of of what of that house. Mm-hmm. So what the seller did was she hired an architect to come in and, and build the house and reimagine it into what it could be based on the constraints. Okay. Um, so we had plans drawn. We have marketed the, the bejesus out of it. Um, and what's been really great about the showings is when people come through, I have everything on, on canvases. So people, when they walk in, they can see the floor plans of what it's, it's going propo- to be, what it's going to be. Not only that, but she took it a step further and went and got the plans approved by the commission on Chicago landmarks. So not only did she draw up the new house, she went and got it approved, which was, which, which was a year long process. Okay. So that's, that is something that's a, a creative approach. That is a creative approach to solving a very unique problem because the number one issue that she heard with her previous brokers was it was too much work and they didn't want to go through the hassle of, you know, redesigning this house. Well, she took care of it for them. And the number one thing that people are are nervous about renovating a house like that is the historic preservation piece of it. And that's that's one of the biggest hurdles. So working within the constraints of the land and the lot and the design and the facade and how it's all going to work, um, that's how we're solving that problem is taking the guesswork out of it for the next buyer. It's, it's been really fun. And scale that down because my current project is designing my next tiny home, the one that I'm going to build for myself and live in. And I literally have seven feet, two inches on the inside by 15 feet to put a whole house. Wow. And well, I'm so, sorry, what? It's yeah. What? So I'm going to live in 120 square feet on wheels. You're going to live in this? Wow. Yeah. And to track back to this topic about constraints being, we'll call it the mother of creativity. I, every day I have to take on a different, I, I don't have to, I take on a different element of the house to tighten it and to see how much, how small can I make the bathroom without hitting my elbows, taking a shower, mm. looking up products that do two things. Like there's very elegant sinks that are combined with toilets. I've seen that. But for me, I really want to, I really want to learn how to uh, design these these dwellings in the tightest possible space but still make them appealing to a couple of different market groups and the market groups are specific for me like college students that can't afford a dorm the dorms we've got a underserved population people that want to airbnb or have a, a guest house for just like that weekend or people that want a weekend getaway or people like me that really do want to live full-time in a really tiny home 
So right now I'm in this exciting, very exciting process of sketching, 3D modeling, uh, product research, like graph paper down to the inch to, to squeeze every single inch out of the inside. And I've managed to have, create a four foot wide kitchen, a bathroom that works that, and a closet. And then the rest of it's a great room <laughs> and a sleeping loft <laughs> and the option of pulling the sofa down to create a second sleeper or a, a full bed. But if without these constraints, I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't even know where to start with it's such a tiny space. I mean, right. it, mm -hmm. it's true. Right, Constraints right. are great. I think two people like the challenge. People like the challenge oh, of yeah. having the- Oh yeah, I love this. The, the, you know, I think we, we get so wrapped up in ambiguity that like, well, it could look this way or it could do that. All right, we could do this or maybe we should try that. Whereas people like structure and they like having rules to abide by. Um, and I think in your case, when you have, here's 120 square feet, try to squeeze a one bedroom house or one bedroom condo into 120 square feet. That sounds like. And a, make that, it appealing to many people. Yes. That's the other part is right. it's definitely appealing to me, but I have to design this in a way where people say, yeah, I could do it. Or that could be my weekend getaway home. Yeah. Or in, in the other case there too, is I think where people find the most joy is is having less, you know, is, you know, you're instead of trying to add options or make it bigger, build this gargantuan McMansion, you're, you actually find, oh, I don't need this giant jacuzzi tub. Right. I don't need all this extra crap. I just enjoy having fewer options. Yeah. And, this weekend I'm hosting yeah. a workshop on tiny home design and the people that are coming specifically want to design their own tiny home. And the first thing we're talking about is this, uh, you know, downsize upgrade concept where you really have to look at every object that you own and decide is is it worth having or can one object serve as more than one thing and how is this design perfected so that life could be better and simple and that we're going to talk about that first and then go into square footages and well, yeah i mean and just having less stuff i mean yeah. Yeah. you know when i lived in boston back to consumerism well when i lived in boston i lived in 650 square feet for 20 years in my brownstone and you can't have a lot of stuff you start getting i had to go through everything every six months in purge because when you're in that small of a space it looks cluttered really quickly so you have you just so i was trained living in that now now my new place is is twice this whatever it's 1500 square feet so i have plenty of space um and i'm i am noticing that i am starting to collect things so i have to be pretty vigilant about going through it um, but my example of um you know constraints forcing creativity mine came up last week i took a, a painting class for two weeks and it was a landscaping painting class and i took all my paints and all my different colors, all the colors that the instructor had recommended. And I've never done landscape painting and I've actually really never, never done painting outside. So this was all new to, there was a lot of, about it that was very new. And the first couple of days I really struggled and I was very overwhelmed. And what my instructor did is he removed, um, he constrained my colors. So he only gave me certain colors that I could use and it completely made everything so much simpler. And it's this, it's kind of the similar idea. Mm -hmm. I was, I was constrained as to what I could use for colors and it made the quality of my output way better immediately. Yeah. And I never would have expected that. I would have thought more colors would have made a better painting, but it really didn't. And well, we, we get but, overwhelmed yeah. by options. We get overwhelmed by decisions that you have to make. It's a lot easier, it's easier to make, you know, one decision of do I use red or blue versus I could use red and indigo and cranberry, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, you get overwhelmed in analysis paralysis and you have to take away options. And I find that when I'm, when I'm working with home buyers, mm -hmm. everyone wants to see, well, I've got this list of 22 homes. I want to see, no, we're going to go look at your top three. And mm -hmm. those are the three that we're going to be. And usually they buy one of those three Yeah, and we need to get rid of options and really sort through the market. Um, yeah, it's it, it, I, to the point about um, you mentioned something about your uh, um, your painting class. It made me think I did a show about 10 years ago um, that was filmed in a small little black box theater. And we had to bring this cartoon character to life. Basically, it was a 
it was, the show was called A Year with Frog and Toad, and it was a children's book that had been adapted to the stage. So we had 20, 22 characters and eight actors in an hour and 40 minutes. So how do you do that? How do you go through all those costume changes in a small little theater that seats about 50 people, keep kids entertained, and how do you create all these characters, costumes, set pieces that have to move around when you have no stage, uh, when you have no stage hands, and when you have like zero square footage in backstage space? Mm-hmm. How do you solve that? And what the most? It was one of the most fun shows I ever worked on. I worked the light board and I was a stage manager for it. And what was so fun was the people that all worked on the show to keep it running smoothly. Okay. Um, we doubled costumes. We doubled, you know, where one costume, she was a frog in one case, and then she's one of the evil frogs. And then she would, you know, the top part of her dress came down and the, she had a belt around her and the top part of her dress came down and then she was like the princess or something oh. like that. So, I mean, it was, you're constantly doubling up on things like that. And then you know, we had the backstage laid out in a way that, um, you know, certain props could get reused and not have to be fought for. So it also forces organization too. Yep. And creates efficiency. It was it was so much fun because we had we had to think of a way. How do we pull this off? Because normally people would have a budget ten times ours. Right, right, right. We had a thousand bucks to work with. Cool. But for those also out there that are don't believe they have the creative agility to to maneuver through and and deal with constraints and create something worthwhile, I think the way to approach it is to treat everything as a game. Yeah, because if you treat, if you say to yourself, "Okay, a constraint is just a rule of the board game," and and that's what you have to follow, and then and make it, and and the result, I believe, is a little bit of fun in the process of getting your mind to expand and coming up with, "Oh well, I could do that." Wow! And then what I believe can happen is with the creativity, the sparks that happen uh, will turn into other sparks, and just this process becomes delightful. So I interviewed David J. Collins, who was an author who wrote a book called Summerdale, which is a horror, no- horror novel that took, r- took place right here in Andersonville. And um, how these things work is, I don't know what I'm going to call the episode until after we have the conversation. And then I got to see where it went and like, what was the lesson that came out of it? And what ended up coming out of that was... A lot of people talk about writing a book. People are constantly talking about how they want to do this. And he did it. So I'm like, how How come you did it? Like, what was different about you? And what he said was he had to change his internal, what he was telling himself in his head. So what I ended up calling the episode was telling yourself yes, because he was telling himself no. He was telling himself I don't, I didn't go to school for writing. Um, I don't have a master in fine arts. I don't have a publisher. I don't, I can't, you know. And he said, I had to change the messages into yes. And he said, that was the key. And I think that is really important because what you believe about the world, about yourself, about your relationship to the world is so important. And I think the internal dialogue that's going in in your head is really, really important. I think with with the, the whole concept of expanding yourself like this gentleman with writing the horror story in Andersonville, took place in Andersonville. Yeah, it's called Summerdale. Yeah. And it's- I'm interested it, in Oh, that. it's really good. I, it, and I, I'm not- sure about his experience, but when I've had to, when I've come up with something that I wanted to take on that wasn't my initial training or my initial um, expertise, expanding myself required two things. One, the willingness to play on the skinny branches, meaning if you fall, you might, you might mess up, but at the same time, it's kind of exciting to be on the skinny branches. And then the other is the realization that you're not alone and that uh, not alone in this in this quest, but there are people that know stuff all around you, mm-hmm. and you should be sharing your project with everyone. Because when I've shared a project that I don't I don't know a lot about X, right? But I shared with someone that's an expertise on X, and then they tell me about someone that I didn't even know about that is an expertise in something else mm-hmm. that supported me in a new way that I didn't even know. So I think 
no person is an island when yeah. you're tra- especially when you're exploring new territory of of something worth doing did this the writer was that his his regular uh, profession was writing or was he just it was, a side project it was not um but it was i i actually don't i don't recall yeah he, so he it was not his main thing um but it was something that he w- had been doing since he was a kid and he started working on this for his first novel which was actually called gay bash and he didn't have a publisher he didn't have any of the things that someone who needed a a book to get published. He didn't have any of those things. He did everything himself. So he had to learn how to self-publish. And he just said, I'm going to tell myself yes, and I'm going to do it all on my own. And it was an incredible story. I would. There was a project in particular that comes to mind that I had this idea, a story that I was developing for a kid's book. And I decided to go for it and write the story and illustrate the book. And for the longest time, don't I was, steal my purple orange. I won't. I won't. <laughs> idea. I'll promote it. Or I'll sign Because I, haven't, I, I haven't patented that. So You're going to paint. Your paintings are going to be the renderings for that. Okay. This particular book uh, was something really close to my heart. And I wanted uh, young people to hear the story about. And, and it's basically about what we're talking about. You could do anything you want as long as you have others. Like that's what the story is about. I won't go into the detail of the entire story, even though I love this story, but I will say that what I learned in the process outside of actually illustrating and writing the story is I involved other people and they all contributed something that I had no idea um, needed to be in the story. And by the end, when I got to the rough draft of having it printed, I took it to a professional children's book author and she went through it and marked it up and she told me, these are the rules for kids' books. Okay. And this is the truth about kids' books. Like in the on the shelf, most only last six months in the stores, and then they're done, unless it's a classic. I'm like, oh, well, that's not why I'm doing this. I want it to be forever. In the kids' book, you have to have 32 pages, and the story arch has to be at page 16 and a double spread. In a kids' book, you don't want to preach. You don't want to, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, wow, this is just... And after all this work, I learned that this would fail in the kids' book industry, even though I loved the story and I illustrated it 100%. And the story, when I read it to myself or others or even kids, they really got excited about these characters. So it's like playing on the skinny branches. I put myself out there. And when I fell, so to speak, I landed in a pillow and decided that I need to make it a full-length movie because the story itself was not really meant to be a book it was meant to be an animated something bigger movie yeah. okay so that's now the new project now oh. it's in its infant stages but like it's exciting to know that it's okay to play on these skinny branches mm-hmm. cuz you could have something even bigger when you pass that horizon mm-hmm. yeah one of the things that you had mentioned um that also keeps coming up is staying connected to others um in whatever you do others that are doing the similar, similar thing as you. Or not um, similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know for me in particular, when I moved here, I, you know, I moved to Chicago from Boston. I didn't really know that many people. So I needed to, I was establishing myself as an artist. I needed to meet people that were artists really quickly just because, you know, I work alone painting. So I need to be connected with other people. So that was kind of a, that was really important. Um, and it didn't, I think I always kind of knew that was important, but that was a, um, a situation where I, it kind of became very obvious very quickly, but that keeps coming up, um, with people who are successful or are just moving forward in their creative endeavors is that they always have, a, um, they stay connected with others that are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is easy. In Chicago, also because the creative community is tight, I've I've experienced a lot of other people. Whatever, whether they do the same thing as me or as they do uh, the other things, is that we all kind of like find out what we're doing and support each other with with work that is in, that is supporting their endeavors, or they find out about a gallery or project. And so, I think this being in a city is great. First being of all, in a, being in I a mean, city, in any city, but in, in city. this city in particular, my experience is that people really 
know each other in this community. Yeah, and I think Chicago is, because Chicago is so huge, it has so many people that live here, You're, you can find anyone that has the same interest as you. And also because it's in the Midwest, people are very open to making connections to other people, you know, un, unlike other, other places. Um, so I think it's very, I think it's fairly it's easy. Yeah. It's really friendly. It's really easy to make connections and you can always find, I think probably the most obscure interest that you have. There's tons of people in Chicago that probably have the same interest. Well, the other thing too, especially in the, well, in real estate in particular, but also I think in the business world too, um, you, there's there's a mindset, not even a mindset, but there's definitely a um, a feeling of keep your friends close, your enemies closer, because you are in competition with each other too. And art's a little bit different because that's more of a creative approach. Whereas from a business perspective, you know, I'm constantly up against you know that agent or that brokerage, and I need to know what my value proposition is because we're all competing for a certain piece do you of find, business. Do you find that you're always up against the same people? There's two agents in particular I'm always up against. And that's because if, at our core, we have very similar groups of people that we're connected to or know because of our, our similar interests. Okay. So they, when I'm going up against, um, uh, there's I won't name names, but there's one agent whenever I'm listing a, a historical home, I'm always competing against him. If I am um, competing for a listing in uh, the South Loop or Museum Park, where about a third of my businesses, there's two agents there that I'm always up against. So what you're so, so just th- I'm getting a little bit into what you're about your business. Yeah. So you're trying to get the listing. Correct. So it's not about selling the it's, home. It's about getting the people to go. You're going up. How against are they going them? to choose me, and okay. how am I going to sell it? So I mean, there's you know I have to be able to sell them on why I'm the best choice or the best option or what my plan is to sell their home. Gotcha. So that's where it gets to be a little more difficult is, yes, we're friends. Yes, we need to learn and feed off each other because I just just had lunch today with one of my idols in the real estate industry um, because we learn from each other. You learn what works and what doesn't. And I come from um, a mindset of abundance. There's plenty of business out there for everybody. And I don't think it's dog eat dog. It doesn't have to be cutthroat. It doesn't have to be that way. Because there are some clients that, frankly, I just don't want to work with. And there are some people that are going to be better fits for others than me. And there's going to be people who are going to be a better fit for me than other agents. So, you know, there's there's definitely that part of it. Um, and and yet, it is a sales industry. We mm-hmm. do have to um, we have to compete. So there's I, I think there's there's definitely something to be said for it's like a tug of war. You have to learn from each other, but you also have to compete against each other. It's and I'm not sure if this is this is more or less the opposite of what's happening in the creative uh, realm. But in my experience with furniture design in particular, the there's people that approach me that want something more traditional or Victorian. They have a specific style in mind that they want. And it's not my thing to do historic um, restoration or design something new based on historic ideas, except modernism and industrial uh, and reclaim furniture. So, so I naturally have a group of other people that I'll send them to say, you, this it would be perfect for this person. And inevitably that person will throw me back mm-hmm. something months later. That's definitely in me, my wheelhouse or my interest. And I think, uh, I can see that in real estate, it would be very different because you are competing. You're both doing the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. but in, in furniture design, it, it's been helpful and profitable for me to spread the wealth and share, I, you know, and not take everything on just, just for the buck, but take things on that I really would love doing and then share with others what they would like doing. So Paul, I know you have something happening at the studio in Pilsen, which, oh, by the way, I'm going to be there on Saturday painting with David. You are? I am. I'm going to be there. David, I'm going to be there Saturday too. Yay. It's going to be like old times. So what's going on in October there? Well, twice a year we have a a show, uh, which is basically converting the the studio into more or less a gallery space and a couple hundred people show up to see our latest and greatest work. And I am going to build a full scale cardboard mock-up of my tiny home that you can walk in and tour so I can prove that 120 square feet is definitely livable. It's going to be made of cardboard, but you'll get it. There'll be windows cut up, cut out of the cardboard and there'll be appliances 
cut out of cardboard. <laughs> I... And I think maybe we could post, it's the second Friday of October and we can maybe post the information on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. I'll yeah. put it at the, at the, so you can Everyone's see Everyone's welcome. If you go to rickyartist.com, you'll be able to see all I'm, the information. I'm also going to be unveiling a chandelier uh, made of plastic bread clips on that show too. <laughs> You have to see it to believe it. I need it. to come see this. Wait, have you ever... I have to see it to believe it because it's I've, still in my I've head. Never been, I never went to your studio in Pilsen. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I've only been it's to really, the one up here It's really, Park. really... Is that it, in an old Ford factory? It's an yeah. old Model T factory. That's right. The best right. part of the building is the elevator. Yeah. The so elevator... Sort of carry cars, right? It's big mm-hmm. enough to yeah. carry two cars and it's an industrial elevator. So you get in and you can look all the way up. What is it? Six stories? Oh, wow. Yeah, roughly. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's a great that building. Great. So, yeah, everyone's invited. We'll make sure. But I'm going to unveil the chandelier too. So. You always, you're always up to... How is everything going with your um, thing, your map of Chicago? The mural? Oh, yeah. it's great. Uh, in the lobby of the Doubletree Hotel downtown on Ohio and Fairbanks, basically Mag Mile. The Doubletree Hotel hired me to, uh, well, it was the art art company that was that the Doubletree hired to find the art for their lobby, and I was one of the artists to do a an assemblage, an assemblage piece, and they asked me to do an abstract aerial view of downtown Chicago, like one I've done before for another lobby in a condo in Logan Square, and I installed it in January, finished it in January or in December. And then they opened up the hotel remodel of the lobby. I think about a month later, but it's been going really well. Oh. I check in on it to make sure that. So it's okay. I, I've only seen it when it was under construction in the studio. Oh, and it was, you've got Alex. It was awesome. What? So it's you have for, to stop. You're down that area all the time for yeah, work. Yeah. So you got to stop in and check oh, it out. It's a gosh, wall. Yes. It's a wall assemblage piece. Uh, it's not a mural, it's not flat, but it's an assemblage, as they say in the art community. But it's an assembly of wood, reclaimed wood blocks, metals, and laser cut flat pieces. And a bunch, and some other things, some acrylic as well, to represent the, the different elements of downtown. And I designed it based on a map of Chicago and it's aerial view. And it can't come out four, in, it can only come out four inches for the, from the wall because of ADA requirements. You oh. can't have people hitting it. But so far, everyone loves it in the hotel, and it's been up, and it's four foot by nine foot, very, very heavy, and uh, it took me, oh God, hundreds of hours to make. Didn't get paid enough, but that's okay. It's a pretty cool project. <laughs> I didn't know how long it would take, because so I was like, sure, I'll do it. All right. And then I did it, and I was like, yeah, that was three all-nighters, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, in my delirium the next day after installing it. But it's a fun project. Wow. That's so cool. I need to go check that out. Yeah, oh. it's on their website, I think, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, in person's way better. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Alex. This thank was you. great. Thank you. And for I would love you. for you guys to come back. I'd oh, love, of course. I, I think I, when we hit, when I'd I do come it, back anytime. So we'll do like an, I'll do another 20, because I'm at like episode 25 ish. So we'll do another 25 episodes and see what I comes up. Yeah. And you guys can come and we'll, I'll yeah, talk about it. would be great because I was episode five. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you, Rick. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.